Hello and welcome to I Don't Know The Podcast, episode 29, 70s UFO cover-ups. This week the Pentagon finally admitted to at least knowing of off-world vehicles that are not created by humans. But covering up information about UFOs is nothing new. From what I can tell from my extensive research, the authorities have been covering up this shit for decades. Even back to the 70s, and probably before that too. Just what did they know, even back then? Was there real credible evidence, way back in the olden times of the 70s? And what does a pre-beard Steven Spielberg think of all this? I don't know. So listen on this week to find out what else I don't know about 70s UFO cover-ups. the 70s, an incredible decade that I.K. Mill grew up in, a decade of amazing cinema like The Godfather, The Exorcist and Debbie Does Dallas. There was disco and punk music at the same time, a time of popular television shows that couldn't possibly be aired these days, and a decade in which a plethora of serial killers had their glory years. It was also a decade of government secrecy and cover-ups a time when MKUltra was still operating. There was also the Watergate scandal that ended the Nixon presidency. And, as we now find out, it was a time of UFO cover-ups, the hiding of advanced technologies. Thanks to my discovery of the 1977 documentary UFOs Are Here, we will learn the extent of their deception. A major myth about UFOs is that only kooks, quacks, nuts, strange people believe in them or are interested in them or see them. Most people think the interest in UFOs is limited to a few cranks. Uh, there have been waves of sightings. We have dutifully reported these things. The version of the documentary that I found has an overly long introduction by a guy called Stan Deo. The documentary you're about to watch was filmed 25 years ago in 1977 in the city of Perth, Western Australia. Despite Stan filming this intro 25 years after the documentary, he still managed to make the picture and sound quality appear as if it was 25 years before the documentary. It was written, filmed, produced by Guy Baskin, British producer who went down to uh, Australia, uh, collected his crew and then flew around the world to make it. The copy you have is an archive copy because all of the masters of this show have been destroyed in various house cleanings at the channel. Someone needs to get a new house cleaner. I also noticed that 
even though the film was completely made by Guy Baskin and titled UFOs Are Here, Stan Deo has renamed this presentation The Deo Files, just because he's added his own bits to the beginning and end. Stan goes on to explain how he got involved in this movie and managed to put his name on it. I was um, cleaning house. That's the way you preserve your conspiracy tapes. Clean the place yourself. And um, getting rid of your stuff for spring cleaning. And there was a wooden um, clothes wardrobe. Uh, in Australia, they don't have closets as much as they have wooden clothes hangers, you know, boxes, you know, nice decorative pieces that go in a bedroom. No closets in Australia? I never realized how backward they actually are down there. And I had too many of this old house that I was renting, and uh, they were kind of falling apart in places, so I wanted to take it to the garbage dump, or the rubbish tip as they call it in Australia. It seems Stan is bilingual. So, my time came and I got out of the uh, station wagon around the back and opened up the back door and put my hands on the wardrobe to start to pull it out, and the guy behind me honks his horn and gets out. Young Billy comes over to me and he says, um, Look, uh, mate, uh, are you going to throw that wardrobe away? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, look, I wonder if I could have it. Uh, I just live a few blocks from here, and you could just drive it over the house for me, and, you know, I'd, I'd be pleased to have it. And I said, well, no problem. Well, with this, a crowd kind of started together around us, and it wasn't other people dumping trash. It was the garbage guys uh, that had filed rights on this uh, garbage tip. Stan explains that the rubbish tip, or detritus mound, as we say in England, it's basically a cliff that you push your garbage off of. And then... Well, with this, these uh, garbage men, or miners of the garbage, whatever you want to call them, big fellas, started to kind of bristle up and walk over you know, a bunch of them like they were going to have a little bit of fisticuffs for this. So the workers get first dibs on anything being thrown away, and they take that very seriously. And he says, we're going to push the car over the edge, mate, if you don't back off and let us have this wardrobe. So with this, the guy that was asking me for the wardrobe reaches in his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and he's an off-duty policeman. He says, right, the first one of it makes a move, I'm going to arrest you. Well, that kind of put a quiet on the whole argument. The policeman got in his car, he told me, follow me, and so I followed the guy. By this time, there'd been a crowd of people throwing the rubbish away watching all this, and a couple of the guys behind the policeman's car said, uh, oh, look, you mind if we come with you? So anyway, a little gaggle of us went over to the policeman's house and installed the wardrobe in his bedroom. I know what you're thinking. What has this overly long, non-closet wardrobe story got to do with UFO cover-ups? Is it a clever metaphor? Is there something hiding in the closet? The answers to those questions are, I don't know, and no, and no. It turns out that one of the guys that helps move the wardrobe into the cop's house works at the TV station Channel 9. Him and Stan start talking about UFOs for some reason, and they decide that he should be included in the documentary that we're about to hear. There, I just cut this week's podcast down by about five minutes. Now on with the real documentary, which is really titled UFOs Are Here. Cue amazing 70s UFO music. That does actually go on for a really long time. 
The visuals look like an acid trip while staring at a lava lamp. But this movie has a lot of big names from the UFO community. Each one gets a short clip introduced by a cool space sound. First up is scientist and ufologist Stanton Friedman. A major myth about UFOs is that only kooks, quacks, uh, nuts, strange people believe in them or are interested in them or see them. That's absolute nonsense. That is, of course, true. There are many credible witnesses. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of kooks who hang around the subject. Next up is US astronomer J. Allen Hynek. Western Australia is unique in the UFO problem because... Per capita, I believe it has more sightings than any other civilized area in the world. Also true, but I take issue with describing Western Australia as civilized. We already know they don't have closets. Then we hear from pre-beard Steven Spielberg, who is either sitting in a very large armchair or he himself is very small. Either way, the chair-to-person ratio seems completely off. Actually, yeah, everybody I bumped in, bump into is either fascinated with the subject or willing to, willing to listen. He also appears to have hiccups. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have allowed that take into one of his own movies. They put on a couple of other people for a quick soundbite, and then we get into it proper, starting with a real Australian case. Moonrise, 3.25 a.m., one mile north of Wanneroo, going towards Yanchep in Western Australia. Jeff Bell, what are we doing here? Well, on February 8th, 1976, at this precise time and location, two chaps were going along this road, uh, north of uh, Wanneroo Road, and uh, they noticed something unusual, and uh, they sent us this report. Here is that record, narrated by a tougher-sounding guy. Early on the morning of Sunday, February 8th, 1976, while on our way fishing at Yanchep, we saw this red light low in the sky approximately a mile north of Burns Beach turnoff in uh, Wanneroo Road. Uh, we talked about this thing, whether it was a, a plane or something else, and on approaching I could see it wasn't moving. We were catching up to it. Getting level uh, with this object, I couldn't see the red light on the back, so I asked my mate to stop, and I opened the passenger side door and watched this thing, and my mate moved over and watched with me. I wouldn't approach anything strange in Australia. Literally everything can kill you there. While we were looking, it was about uh, 150 feet up and about 90 degrees from the car. And I noticed it had pink lights coming from windows, uh, what looked like the front. And underneath it, it had this big shiny silvery light which looked like it was, you know, spinning around. While watching this thing for four minutes, it took off very, very slowly in a southwest direction about 400 to 500 metres and stopped and hovered again. Uh, we watched it for about another minute and then we, we packed them and took off. Do you think that looks like a Hollywood movie or is what they are saying so unbelievable? Believe me, the visuals did not look like a Hollywood movie. But since he mentioned Hollywood movies... Star Wars, the film that is likely to make more money than any other in history, is only letting us get out of the observer's seat and into the pilot's. That, after all, is where we'd all like to be. What follows is a two-and-a-half-minute clip from Star Wars, the TIE Fighter and Millennium Falcon fight sequence, to be precise. And then, for some reason, this. None of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality 
of Jaws. This is the extraordinary motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Jaws. A two-minute trailer for Jaws. Then we find out why. While he was up to his neck in water filming Jaws, he was really thinking of his next film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a film concerned with UFOs. Just after Jaws finished, uh, I came back and I wanted to relate to dry land and I also wanted to think about Close Encounters, so I went out to Pear Blossom. Did Spielberg only agree to do this if they plugged his latest film? And I went out there and I parked my car, turned the lights out, and sat on the roof, and looked up at the sky, and said to myself, if something comes down here right now, and lands on the road, and an opening appears, would I get on and take a ride? Well, of course, right? And I got very, very nervous, because I realized that I wouldn't get on and take a ride. As a matter of fact, I was getting so nervous by embracing and romancing that thought that I got back in my car and I drove back to Los Angeles. I was terrified. Pussy. Most people think the interest in UFOs is limited to a few cranks. In fact, there are thousands of intelligent people who get together at international conferences all over the world to study them. We visited one at Chicago to interview the man who for 20 years was head of the US Air Force top security investigation into UFOs, Dr. Alan Hynek. Yeah. He's not a weirdo at all. In fact, in the early part of his career, he was employed to debunk UFOs. It's uh, particularly heartening to me to see the rise of interest among scientists, and particularly astronomers, uh, in the UFO problem. So it's often been said that, oh, why don't astronomers see UFOs? As a matter of fact, they do. It's true. A lot of top-ranked astronomers are involved in the field. 53% of those who responded said that in their opinion, the UFO problem was, was worthy of scientific study. And what is more, 64 of the astronomers who responded uh, gave what would be called UFO reports, objects, sightings that they personally had made at their observatories frequently, which to them was unexplained. So a majority, even back in the 70s, believed UFOs were worth serious study. Then we hear from a French guy called Jacques Vallée. He's an astronomer and scientist who worked for NASA. One of the most important findings that uh, has been made about this phenomenon is that it is global in scope. In other words, it's, it doesn't belong to uh, the French or the Americans or the British. Or, uh, there have been waves of sightings. He's right. It truly is, how you say, a global phenomenon. He explains that it appears the sightings will come in waves at certain locations. And what is typical about these waves is that the, the, the people from all these different cultures around the world are describing the same thing in their own terms. What they are describing is an object that seems to be able to, to maneuver, it seems to be a technology, it seems to come to the ground and leave traces. And there have been rings especially that have been found, uh, burned circles that have been found very commonly in Australia that uh, are absolutely identical to uh, things that have been catalogued in this country, in France. There is now a catalogue of such traces that encompasses more than a thousand sightings. Thousands of cases of the same type of sighting. Yet back then this was still the subject of ridicule. The movie moves on to a specific case in the USA. An ordinary man in an ordinary street in America. But this man started the 1947 wave of sightings that swept the world. 
when he claimed to have seen from his mountain rescue plane nine disc-like objects, roughly 45 miles away, flying at a speed of approximately 1,500 miles per hour near Mount Rainier, Oregon. The date? June 24, 1947. I've been to Mount Rainier. Later, when asked by a reporter to describe how they flew, Arnold said their motion was like saucers skipping over water. In the papers the next day, the world first saw the term flying saucer. I've never liked the term flying saucer. I guess a frisbee hadn't been invented yet. On June 24, 1977, 30 years to the day after he first sighted them, Ken Arnold consented to speak to us. He had refused to make any public statements for the last five years. It's easy to see that after 30 years, he's still angry at the disbelief. Right here, we've seen something, I've seen something, hundreds of pilots have seen something in the skies. We have doodle, uh, dutifully reported these things. It was their doodle-diddly-doody to report sightings. And we have to have 15 million witnesses before anybody's going to look into the problem seriously? Why, this is utterly fantastic. This is more fantastic than than flying saucers or, or people from Venus or anything, as far as I'm concerned. He is angry after five years of silence. Arnold's sighting amazed many people, but none more than publisher Ray Palmer. Kenneth Arnold fits into it. Uh, this is his 30th anniversary. And strangely enough, it's my 33rd, because I knew about flying saucers three years before Kenneth Arnold made his first sighting. Ray Palmer really looks sleazy. I remember... Every man in the 70s looked a little bit sleazy. In the middle 40s, a man called William Shaver had written to Palmer about his alleged visit to a subterranean culture, peopled by beings he referred to as Deros and Teros. What he wrote was to create another legend of UFO mythology. This story really is quite something, and it's covered very well by The Unbelievable Podcast. You should check it out. Briefly, it was the story of, of, a, of a radioactive flare from the sun around 12,000 years ago, which virtually wiped out life on Earth. And the survivors fled into space in spaceships, while the, the, the persons left behind, whom he called Abandoned Darrow, uh, went into, into the cavern world and set up a civilization there, which from that time on became contaminated because the atmosphere had to be drawn from the surface and so on in the water. So they gradually degenerated into what he called Darrows. These Darrows are disgusting, slimy subhumans with weird noses like a short elephant's trunk. And Richard Shaver claimed he was kidnapped by these revolting abominations. And Shaver said they had flying saucers. And in the caves they used these things, which were discs about 30 feet in diameter, to go through tunnels and the torturous caves underneath the ground for hundreds of miles, even from continent to continent. And they were controlled automatically so they did, did not touch the floor, the ceiling, or the walls and therefore they had this flipping motion and they went through caves where they had a right angle turn they traveled around 1200 miles an hour well that just sounds incredible but the descriptions of the sources matches that of arnold's perhaps the greatest surprise was when arnold reported his sighting to the nearest u.s military airbase he found on the wall of the commander's office this classified gun sight photograph which bore a remarkable resemblance to what arnold claimed he had just seen and Shaver had discussed three years before. For the time, it's actually a pretty good photo. Around this time, J. Allen Hynek was hired to properly investigate UFO sightings. I started almost as a complete skeptic 
because I thought the whole thing was a question of post-war nerves, but it was the persistence of the phenomenon, it refused to dry up and blow away, that finally led me to the belief that we had a real phenomenon to deal with. He seems pretty credible too, especially since, like me, he doesn't like the term flying saucers. But it, it's, it is really too bad because it has caused a great deal of uh, jokes and so forth. For instance, uh, uh, one common expression is that if you want to see a flying saucer, just goose the waitress. I guess humour really was different back then. It's not just sightings of UFOs they had in Australia in the 70s, though. There were alien encounters, too. It's hard to imagine uh, here in the middle of Sydney amongst all this modern technology how Fred Birmingham, a Parramatta surveyor, would have reacted to what he saw. He described seeing a strange aerial object shaped like a, an arc uh, moving in, in, in a zigzag manner and apparently landing in nearby Parramatta Park. What followed uh, was a, a description of meeting a being he called a spirit and an invitation to visit and, and walk on board this arc. Uh, it paralleled uh, many stories that are similar to it right around the world. It does appear to follow the same description of the craft by the other Australian guy. And uh, you read about these stories in newspapers all the time, but uh, this story in fact is, is what constitutes the first recorded close encounter in Australia, the date 1868. It's from 1868? That's a hundred years before the other sightings. As an industrial chemist, uh, I specialise in the study of what we term um, close encounters of the third kind. In this type of UFO sighting, um, uh, an unidentified aerial object um, interacts with the physical environment, thereby leaving a, a permanent uh, physical record of its presence. Did you hear that? Is that a car or a bus? Could even be a boat. Vehicles sounded different back then. I mean, back then, all our emergency vehicles went nee-na, nee-na, instead of woo-woo-woo-woo. But I've got a bit sidetracked. What is the RAAF's official view of this? We visited them to find out. The RAAF is, of course, the Royal Australian Air Force. Squadron Leader White, you're with the Department of Defence here in Canberra. Is your function to deal with UFO inquiries entirely? Uh, only partly. Um, in Air Force office here, I have several duties. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? He probably tells his wife how busy he is every day. He doesn't want her thinking he has his feet up just waiting for UFO reports. He'd end up doing housework every evening. We think there's a fairly good reason um, to call them UFOs. The unidentified part of that statement is assuming immediately that we don't know what it is that people are seeing. Did they deliberately film this in the noisiest possible location? what people see are not necessarily objects. They can be weather factors, marsh gas, lightning, that sort of thing. Yeah, get a lot of marsh gas on the coast of Sydney, do you? Uh, the main problem that we see is the term UFO immediately conjures up in people's minds flying saucers, little green men. Yeah. So unusual aerial sightings we prefer. That's a bit unfair. I've been looking around at UFOs for a while now, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone describing little green men. Little grey men, yes. Not green. I'd say about 90% uh, we can explain. 10% uh, on average we can't, for various reasons. Um, they may be put in too late. Uh, insufficient information. Some are hoaxes. But definitely some we cannot explain. 
At least he acknowledges that some can't be explained. And we appreciate it very much that we can talk to you because it's, I think, fairly rare that um, you give interviews at all. Correct. Thank you. But he still didn't let the crew inside the building. Let's face it, this guy could be anyone. But in closing with this possible Air Force imposter, he's asked what is the official policy of the RAAF. In the early 1950s, about the mid-1950s, um, the government of Australia, along with the governments of America and United Kingdom, uh, thought there might be some threat to national security with the sightings of all these peculiar happenings. So they asked the RAAF to investigate all the reports and come up with the facts. And after about 10 or 12 years, uh, we could not produce any information that suggested there were any interlopers from outer space. Uh, the 10% or so unexplained, we couldn't explain, but on the other hand, they didn't suggest any interlopers. Like the US and the UK, the Australians said they found nothing and stopped looking at it, which we now know is not true. But that seems to be typical of all the militaries. What about civilian authorities? This confidential report from a civil airline captain was given to us reporting an incident that took place over Western Australia in 1976. The Department of Transport knew of no known traffic in the vicinity and the Met Office knew of no possible cause for turbulence. If the turbulence we hit was caused by an object, I'd estimate it was moving at, say, between Mark 2.5 to Mark 3. That's uh, around 2,000 miles an hour. Passengers were hurt and the stewardess was off for six months and uh, with an injured back and seats were broken. Bloody hell, that sounds serious. Well, he may not think the Aussie sightings are as spectacular as in the US. I'm sure American listeners are actually more amazed that someone can take six months off of work and still have a job. The documentary then takes a dramatic turn and ends up in Chicago, Illinois, where we meet Betty Hill of Betty and Barney Hill fame. For those of you who know nothing about this subject and are suddenly going, Duh, who's that? Duh. Betty and Barney Hill were the subject of one of the most mystifying alien abduction cases ever. In 1961, they were driving in rural New Hampshire when they spotted a strange flying object. The object stops, and we join the story when Barney stops the car. Now Barney decided to get out and try to identify this craft. And he saw a group of human-like figures standing in the window looking down at him. And he had the feeling that he was being told to keep looking, don't be afraid, no harm's going to come to you. And at that point, the craft started to descend. Barney was filled with fear, thinking he was going to be captured. He ran back to the car, and we took off speeding down the highway. But that isn't the end of it. We heard a series of beeping sounds. And a few miles beyond this, we heard a second series of beeping sounds. Now later, in our investigation of this, we began to realize that we could not remember what had happened between the two series of beeping sounds. Missing time. What could have happened? Betty and Barney were separately put under hypnosis to find out. The hypnosis proved that Barney and I had been captured and taken on board a UFO. Oh no, I think they were probed. If we, after the first series of beeping sounds, we were speeding down the highway. Barney left the main highway onto a side road and then a sudden left hand turned onto a very narrow 
Woods Road. The beings whom he had seen on board the craft were now standing in the middle of this road. And the car motor stalled. The body was trying and trying to stop the car. It wouldn't start. They separated, came up, and took us out of the car in two groups. They took us to a path in the woods to where the craft was on the ground. Took us on board, took us into separate rooms, gave us physical examinations. They were definitely probed. And during this examination, we learned they had put a cup-like instrument on Barney's abdomen. Well, that's his story. Well, you're one of the few people to have met aliens. What do they look like? They all had very, very large eyes, very small nose, thin slit for a mouth, no hair, no eyebrows, eyelashes, and no this part of the ear that we could see. Fucking greys. Now I know for sure they were probed. But it's not an exclusive American right to see UFOs. You're damn right, because the crew go back to Australia. Now I can see where their budget went. They talked to the Reverend William Gill, an Australian vicar who at the time of his experience was forcing Jesus into the savages of Papua New Guinea. He and 38 other people witnessed the same thing. Can you imagine what it's like to look up in the sky and see a totally foreign looking object. They're sta uh, just hovering, uh, not very far high up, maybe two or three hundred feet uh, up in the air and glowing and two uh, bipods jutting out from behind it, from uh, underneath it and sparkling all around and some figures up there. Yes, I can imagine it. This solid looking object and figures walking about on top and not the slightest noise whatsoever. And so we waved. Yoo-hoo! Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get this object down onto the playing field? And as we waved, wondering whether we'd get some recognition and whether perhaps they would uh, understand what we wanted, they waved back. So I asked the boy to go quickly down, bring me torch, bring me pencil, bring me paper, and uh, return as quickly as he can so that I can get him or any other events that occur, minute-by-minute minute movements, um, so that at least we'd be able to, um, to talk about it the next day. Now, I'm not poo-pooing his account, but instead of asking for paper and pencil, why didn't he ask for a camera? Cameras were around in the 70s. I, I know, I researched that. And this he did, very, very quickly. He brought it back, and he brought the, to the torch and put the torch on and shone it to the, the craft. And... Uh, as he did so, he waved the, or uh, moved the torch uh, this way. And we were dumbfounded when we looked at the craft and the craft was as though it was responding to the torch. Actually, if you watch any of the stuff that Dr. Stephen Greer puts out, he does the same sort of thing. Next day, uh, just prior to the evening service, about seven o'clock, um, the thing was there again, it uh, had arrived, uh, about an hour earlier and um, we all decided to uh, have the normal even song that we uh, do have on uh, on those uh, nights uh, 
because, uh, well, the thing was out there outside the church anyway, and, and uh, we felt it wouldn't go away during the service. Hang on a minute. There's an alien spacecraft that you had contact with outside, and you still go and have a boring church service. But it was still there after their hymns or whatever they did. And so for another hour or two, we watched. Um, and then suddenly it did go. And uh, there was this amazingly incredible speed uh, that the whole craft disappeared uh, to nothing uh, across the bay uh, in a matter of a second or so. I don't know. He had a whole day to get a camera. The documentary then has a guy talk about different cultures and folklore. And then we're back in Australia. One night about ten years ago in Floriot Park in Perth, Paul Moink saw something he couldn't quite explain. Paul, tell me about that. Um, well, it would have been around about ten or eleven years ago. I think it would be around about 1966. I was going to bed. It would have been about eleven or twelve o'clock at night. Uh, I laid in bed, looked out through the window, and I saw this thing going backwards and forwards extremely fast. I couldn't work out what it was, so I jumped out of bed, got both my parents out of bed, and a friend who was staying with us at the time, so there's four of us actually seeing it, so I wasn't by myself. And uh, we stood out here and watched it for quite some time. Is there a rule in Australia that interviews have to be done by a busy road? And we thought, uh, what the heck is it? It was just too fast to be a, a jet. It was, it was changing direction too fast to be anything but, uh, I, I would say, a UFO. Again, I don't disbelieve this guy, but where's the evidence? In the same year, this photograph claimed to be a UFO, was taken from Kings Park in Perth, four miles away from where Paul's family live in Floriot Park. Oh, OK. It, yeah, that's a pretty good photo, actually. It was yellow and was going backwards and forwards pretty fast, and it, well, it looked very unusual, you know, and rather interesting, but, uh, of course, it was fairly late, and, uh, but it looked like a UFO. I really did think that, you know, because I'd never seen anything like that before. That was just one of several other witnesses they have on here. Could the swift disappearance, so typical of UFOs, be caused by pursuit, as in this clip from 20th Century Fox Star Wars? They do it again. A whole two and a half minute clip of Star Wars. We then go to an interview with a guy called Colin Cameron on a very windy golf course in Australia, instead of a noisy road. Well, it was on the 6th of January 1968, just by the edge of the riverbank near this golf course, that I witnessed the landing of no less than two flying saucers, a negative craft and a, and a good guy's craft. There are both good guys and bad guys. How can you tell which is which? I mean, a lot of people think the Empire in Star Wars is bad, but they provide gainful employment for everyone, from IT guys to cleaners and dishwashers. And the whole thing started off when the State Electricity Commission built a 66,000 volt power station next door to my home. And these attracted the flying saucers which came and had a look at it while it was in its construction stages and when it was switched on especially, they came around in droves measuring the magnetic fields around it. I'm beginning to think that this is just a guy who objected to having a power station built next to his house. So I had my camera loaded up with 400 ASA black and white 8mm film and I took it and followed this UFO down by the roadside by the river and I got some spectacular film of a landing. I had a sudden impression to look up and lo and behold this light in the sky was getting bigger and bigger 
and I realised it was going to land. This guy's definition of spectacular is very different from mine. It did land, but I was so surprised because watching a UFO land isn't any normal event. I was so surprised I didn't get a picture of the first landing, and just as well because this was a landing by the men in black, what we know as the negative flying saucers. Yes, good thing you didn't film that. But after I'd recovered from my surprise, I did get uh, enough gumption to photograph the second UFO, which came from Ashtar Command, which was in hot pursuit of this first UFO. And this is the one that landed uh, in the movie film I took. The film is crap. This picture was taken the morning after the landing. It left a burnt circle 60 feet big in the grass. This second picture was taken seven years later of the same burnt circle and as you see nothing has grown on the spot. Now these photos are very clear and they do indeed show burnt circles in the brush. Well now let's take a look at the burnt circle ten years later and see whether or not anything has grown. Let's. Yes well this is the burnt circle. Um, a lot of flying saucer landings leave burnt circles and uh, nothing has grown on this one since the original landing on that particular night and over the years we've come back to the boulevard and checked this area and found no growth on the burnt circle. Well, there is a circle of ungrowth but Colin isn't just about annual circle checks. Along with Shaver, Colin Cameron claims to have had contact with the subterranean Deros and Terros here in Australia. Remember the Deros from earlier? The revolting, slimy, elephant-nosed assholes? This belief should not be dismissed too lightly. Ray Palmer came up with some astonishing details about Shaver's uh, experience. I think Mr. Shaver, well, he originally claimed that he spent eight years in these caves with these Dero and Tero people. How terrible! And I discovered later much to my embarrassment, uh, that he had spent these eight years in the Ypsilanti State Hospital for the Insane in Michigan. Oh, dear. I contacted the doctors, and they said he was catatonic. He lived in a world they even had to feed him, in this imaginary world of his. Except for one thing, when Kenneth Arnold uh, saw the flying saucers, I put together two and two, and I said, is the man catatonic, or is, is there something else going on? Or is there a way I can save my embarrassment and put a meaning to my years of wasted research? Maybe because despite Shaver's undisputed insanity, many people still claim to have contact with the scumbag Deros, including this Cameron guy. I've been hearing these voices now for, oh, for about the next seven years onwards, every night. And uh, until I started taking some infrared film, which I'd read in a book by... Um, can't think of his name now, but... Uh, Trevor James. Trevor James. And um, he had, at the suggestion of Ashtar Space Command, taken infrared photography and got these invisible flying saucers. So I thought, well, as these entities were invisible and they were bothering me, I'd try some infrared film too. And that's where I got these pictures of these entities. Colin Cameron needs to stop wasting his money on expensive photography gear. The photo just looks like smoke on which the outline of a person is drawn on with a sharpie. And uh, after those nights, um, what was happening to me was I was starting to hear these voices, just like Shaver was, 
saying I was going to die, saying they were going to get me, saying they wanted to stop me researching into flying saucers and generally trying to terrify me. But I was never scared throughout the whole thing. This is what's kept me going. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't really out to get you. The documentary then takes another massive jump. After talking to the clearly insane Colin Cameron, they go straight to Klaus Noble, inventor of the Nobel Prize Awards. It's something that man cannot comprehend. I think it's very likely that uh, uh, there are unexplained phenomena and uh, uh, I certainly have many times hoped that they would come and visit us now and tell us here on Earth uh, that uh, we are in the process of doing things that are not really in our best interest because right now it seems like we are self-destructive and I would like to have them to come visit us. Maybe if he made a Nobel Prize for aliens they might come. So after that interview, the documentary comes to its conclusion. Governments really are covering up this shit, but for good reason. Experience leads us to believe that there would be a complete breakdown of the social order. Like the riots in New York when the lights went out. In the MGM film Soil and Green, we get a taste of the chaos the future may hold. It's a very short clip of Soil and Green. I mean, it's not Star Wars, is it? From the government's point of view, uh, we're still growing up and eventually... They might want to tell us something about what they've uh, discovered over, over, over the decades. Uh, there is a rumor that was in U.S. News and World Report a number of months ago that uh, Jimmy Carter might make, a, uh, uh, make some unsettling disclosures about the UFO phenomena sometime in December. Jimmy Carter did actually say he saw a UFO in 1969. A graduate nuclear physicist in America felt it his duty to report a sighting he shared with 12 other people. Perhaps he will prove, in the light of future events, to be the most credible witness of all. This rare official document was signed by the then governor of the state of Georgia. Now, the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. Whoa! As we were about to finish this documentary, another intriguing explanation of UFOs was given to us by an ex-FBI informer, now living in Perth. A research physicist, what he has to say is what he believes to be the truth. It is so staggering, we felt we should extend this program so that he could be heard. It's like an Unsolved Mysteries update. This scientist believes that man holds the secret of anti-gravity and can produce flying sources at will. We interviewed him at a private house in Perth. This must be important for them to interview him inside. Well, originally I didn't start to uh, investigate UFO phenomena. Um, I suppose I started studying the physics that led me to this point. Oh my God, it's Stan Deo. The guy with the long wardrobe story from the beginning. He's not just some former FBI guy into UFOs. He was in a secret government program. And I was trained there with um, 180 some odd other characters uh, to... Uh, do research in areas of um, electrogravitics later and uh, we were programmed with libraries of information by slides flashed up on a wall at the rate of 200 pages a second we couldn't even read them but they were being implanted in our minds subliminally typical americans hating reading and then um, i proceeded to uh, do private research in this electrogravitics uh, thinking that i had uh, cracked the secret of anti-gravity all by myself and jumping up and down in my father's labs and mines in, in Dallas and um, one day I was approached by the government uh, and a kind of a emissary from Dr. Edward Teller's office, uh, Dr. James R. Maxfield 
Well, he told me uh, what I'd been doing in my lab and the details of stuff I haven't even written down or told anybody. He knew. Uh-oh. So it appears the US government subliminally programmed a bunch of people with secrets about anti-gravitational physics and then let them go off and conduct their own research. So what happened to you then? Well, um, they suggested that I finish my research in Australia. I uh, wasn't enthralled with the idea, but uh, Dr. Maxfield told me that uh, I would be paid to come down and that uh, I was to call the Australian consulate in um, San Francisco and ask for Bob Gray. And that's how he ended up at an Australian detritus mound starting fights with his wardrobe. And it's here that I realise maybe they should have left Stan out of this production because he goes on to explain that he was actually an FBI informant who was tasked with telling the FBI all the comings and goings of the White House and how he was compromised and they were going to kill him. He moves to Australia and continues his research. He discovers the secrets to anti-gravity and free energy and decides it's a great idea to tell his old FBI chums. That's when um, people here in this country uh, at the aeronautical research labs and uh, politicians started to get a hold of me. ASIO contacted me. Good grief. Uh, an odd infinitum uh, chain of uh, intelligence people, including two CIA people from the state. Uh, Dr. Tom Keeble in the Aeronautical Research Labs, he told me, yes, we know about the flying saucers your countrymen have built and in England and in Canada. And uh, in fact, we have film records of them here in the RAAF uh, files. I said, uh, I want to stop you there. Yeah. I want to stop him there too. I googled Stan Deo, and he has a YouTube channel and a website that is full of crazy shit. Cosmic conspiracies, the coming of the Antichrist, in fact, any end-of-the-world batshit crazy idea, and what you can buy to prepare for that. After seeing all that, I don't believe a word he says about anything, and I certainly wouldn't take a wardrobe from him. I really wish they'd left the last word to Klaus Noble. Episode 29, 70s UFO cover-ups, the epilogue. So, what have we learnt this week? We learnt that 70s UFO shows had awesome 70s UFO sound effects. We learnt that some accounts might not be as credible as they seem. I discovered later, much to my embarrassment, uh, that he had spent these eight years in the Ypsilanti State Hospital for the Insane in Michigan. And we learnt that every bit of this documentary was probably done in one take. A physical record of its presence. UFOs are here did actually have some very credible witnesses, with some sightings being witnessed by multiple people with no relationship. But back in the 70s, if you reported a UFO, you'd be discounted as a nutjob or a freak. And it's no wonder when people like Colin Cameron and Stan Deo are included into the debate. Those guys are either hucksters or have a genuine need for mental help. Obviously, governments do know about this stuff. And as we've seen with other things, they do tend to keep information away from the public. But at the moment, we have no idea how much they actually do know. In fact, it's taken a guy from a shitty so-called punk band to get the government to even admit to the smallest thing. Maybe we need someone from a better punk band to get the ball rolling. If you enjoy this podcast, then share it with your friends and let me know. Join the Facebook group and the Instagram, and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com. 
special thanks to our logo creator, Raymond Roel of Project Raven Creative. See all his links in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what I don't know. Things have been